Uh, this book, uh, this uh, poem is entitled Riding in the NBA Championship Parade, o Oakland 2018. My granddaughter sitting next to me is grinning at Stephen Curry dancing like Barishnikov in the street holding the Larry O'Brien trophy above his head, the sky raining blue and gold confetti and ganja wafting through the air. I am in love with California, where months ago marijuana was made legal, and I imagine the bear flag flying over a separate and democratic republic. You gotta love it, I say. And granddaughter Carson, tall, slender, beautiful, raises her hand, and we slap palms together, and I believe the sound we made sounded like love. Hello, Heather Knight. That was Warriors great Tom Machery starting our episode off with some culture. I love how Total SF has become a legit poetry podcast. Me too. It's um, happened all of a sudden. We had a poet laureate, a bus driving poet, and now we have a former basketball pro poet. Yeah, Tom Machery is the most interesting man in the world. He's an immigrant, a poet, former indie bookstore owner, grew up in San Francisco, and basketball player. His number is retired by the Warriors. I was smiling through this whole interview. But first, I know you want to talk about some breaking news. Carfree JFK, JFK Promenade, it's permanent? It is. Finally, this decades-long debate is over, signed, sealed, and delivered. Uh, San Francisco voters not only rejected Prop I, which would have returned it to its um, traffic-filled pre-pandemic state, but they also passed um, Prop J, which means it's car-free JFK promenade forever. So it was a win-win. I'm just glad it's over. It is over, right, Heather? <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know in this city, but it seems like it is. It would have to go back to the voters in the future um, for a chance to be overturned. I was out at a party on JFK promenade and got to see one of our all-time favorite guests, the godfather of skate, David Miles Jr., as well as a bunch of other people who've been pushing for this for years. David was wearing one of his famous top hats and furry long coats and roller skates and said he really couldn't believe it. He was still in shock because um, he has literally been pushing for this since um, around the time I was born, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, since 1978, I've, I've talked to him about it. And you went out and recorded. We've got a clip here. We're about to hear Marta Lindsay from Walk SF and then David Miles Jr., the godfather of skate. Here's the clip. So, one more time. When I say J, you say joy. J. Joy. Joy. J. Joy. When I say I say don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. We really, like, beat that one down. <laughs> I really went down. That was awesome. Um, all right, so we're going to have a group hug now because we love this space. We love each other. We love this community. We love the future in San Francisco. You know, you want something. You want something. You fight for it. You fight for it. Then you get it. You know, I... I I equate it to, you know, two dogs. They live next to each other. Dog goes outside, other dog goes outside. They run up and down the street barking at each other. Rah, 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 rah. And then one day, one dog don't come out. And you run out there, rah, rah, what? <laughs> Where you at? I, I feel like going over to Dee Dee Wilson's house, knocking on the door and saying, hey, <laughs> what are you doing? But it is, it's over. That 44-year 
trek, that adventure, is over. Yeah, I can't wait to get out there. I think we may have promised a total SF party, so um, I'll have to go listen to our previous episodes and see what we promised the people. <laughs> what did we promise? I don't know. Yeah. We promised something. <laughs> um, back to Tom Macheri. I've interviewed him a few times before for stories. He was kind of this tough guy basketball player, but when you talk to him, he's so thoughtful and has just lived this most incredible life. Yeah, and we got to go meet with him in a suite at Chase Center as they were preparing for a game a couple of weeks ago. So um, always love going there. The Warriors may not be playing great basketball right now, but the team is always awesome. Yeah, and he's a really big fan. There were decades where he was an English teacher and an indie bookstore owner and wasn't even really following the team that much. Now he's really into it. Uh, And staying busy, at 84, Tom has published his first novel, The Case of the 61 Chevy Impala, a Brovelli Brothers mystery. It's a detective mystery that takes place in the world of Oakland used car dealers in the 1960s. Tom also has a memoir coming out next year. I want to like be like this when I'm in my 80s. Me too. If I am being interviewed in a suite at the Chase Center about my new novel at age 84. I will consider it a huge win. What is your novel going to be about, Heather? (laughs) Not sci-fi, definitely (laughs) rom-com. Go to Tom's website at warrior14.com for his poetry books, novel, and more. Stick around for the end. Masheri will tell us what his Warriors signing bonus was back in 1961, and there's a lot of great conversation in between. We recorded a few weeks ago, right after the Draymond Green incident, but before the Warriors' season started. I'm Peter Hartlob, here with Heather Knight. We'll see you on JFK Promenade soon, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Thomas Sherry, welcome to Total SF. Thank you for having me. We're sitting here at Chase Center, very different from where you played as a warrior. What do you think of the new arena? Well, I love it. I think it's, uh, I was just looking at the seating and it looks to me like there's, well, I've been here uh, last year and, and the seating is just fabulous. Everybody seems to have a pretty good view of the of the court so I love it pretty big contrast from where you played it will show you some photos later but um, <laughs> you were playing you know USF gym a couple different places and then I heard and maybe you told me I, I think we last spoke when I was writing about the city jersey I heard you guys practiced at high schools because USF had priority we did. We practiced at high schools. We also practiced down in the Presidio. They had a, uh, the Army had a gymnasium down there, and we would practice three or four times um, down there, if I remember right. And uh, we never actually practiced where we played, the Cow Palace and, and the auditorium downtown. Um, we, we never got a, a chance to practice there. We just played on game, game nights here. Well, congratulations on your book. We're going to talk about it in a little bit, but I want to say it a few times so it gets in people's heads. The Case of the 61 Chevy Impala, which I am enjoying immensely. You've published poetry books. This is your first novel? It is. It's, uh, it's a, I got the idea from a good friend of mine, that uh, John Jackson, who writes uh, hard-boiled detective fiction. He lives up in Missoula, and, and he's been writing uh, and 
I guess I reading his stuff, I finally decided, well, you know, I'll give it a try, <laughs> see, see what happens. And, and uh, this is the result. And it's, uh, it's from uh, Epicenter uh, Camel Books up in Seattle. And uh, they love it. And they signed me to a three book deal. So this is the first in a series, and it's uh, called the Bravelli Brothers Mystery, uh-huh. and with the subtitle being the uh, the case of the '61 Chevy Impala. The next book is going to be the same brothers' mystery, uh, but it's going to be the case of the 1966 Ford Mustang. <laughs> and every 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 no- every novel from then on is going to have something to do with automobiles. Well, I'm, I'm enjoying it. As I mentioned, we'll talk about it in a little bit. But I, I have to ask, first novel published at age... 84. I'm willing to admit it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not quite 84 yet. October 26, I'm going to be 84. So I might as well be 84, right? All right. You're a young 84. Yeah, I am. Well, it's, <laughs> That's uh, quite an accomplishment. I, I, t- I think I told you earlier, this is a very optimistic deal here <laughs> we're doing. <laughs> We wanted to ask you about your early childhood growing up in San Francisco. Um, your family left Russia, escaping the Bolsheviks. And what do you remember about life as a kid in San Francisco? Well, I'm glad you asked me because my memoir is probably coming out <laughs> oh, <cool. laughs> in, the, in, the, in the spring. And I, so I'm right in the middle of doing a lot of editing for that memoir. And a very large portion of that memoir is those early years. Uh, the years in the internment camp, uh, my, my mother, sister, and I were interned by the Japanese during the Second World War mm. uh, for four years. And then uh, we came to the United States, um, where my father already had um, um, immigrated uh, earlier, and he had an apartment ready for us. But uh, there's quite a bit about that particular growing up period in San Francisco. It... Uh, it started in 1946 when I think we arrived in 46, and then it went up through the uh, McCarthy period. And of course, I'm—we're uh, Russian immigrants. Uh, my family escaped the Bolsheviks. We were uh, what was called white Russians as opposed to the red Russian Bolsheviks. And during that McCarthy period, we suffered a great deal. So it's uh, that section of the memoir was very difficult to write because it was very painful. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Well, we'll have to have you on again when that comes out. Well, I hope you will. (laughs) Do you have an earliest athletic memory? Well, yes, probably. Uh, My first athletic memory is kicking the ball. Mm -hmm. Uh, Grant Elementary School, no longer there, on uh, Pacific Heights, uh, Pacific Avenue. And... uh, the teams were chosen up. We were third or fourth grade, if I remember right. And I kicked the ball, and I kicked the ball very far. And I found that by kicking the ball very far, the other uh, students liked me better. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was, you know, I wore short pants. I didn't speak English very well. I, was, uh, I wasn't bullied necessarily, but I was, I was the out outsider mm-hmm. in that school. But the more I became an athlete, the more I did wonderful athletic things. Uh, so I must have been fairly talented even back then in the third or fourth grade, but I kicked the heck out of the ball. And uh, after that, you know, the, the, uh, the machinery, let's choose them up on the team. <laughs> and I, I got a little bit of cred. 
Well, you were you were drafted by the Warriors, and I'm sorry we're skipping St. Mary's, but I got a photo for you later of that. Um, <laughs> you were you were drafted by the Warriors in Philadelphia. Um, were you excited? How'd you find out you were going to come back to the Bay Area, and were you excited to get back here? Well, I was. Uh, I was in the. I didn't expect to come back to the Bay Area. In fact, I packed a big trunk to go back to Philly. I was in the Army, and I was laying in bed in my bunk, and uh, and a guy came to me and woke me up and said the the team has just been. Uh, sold to a group in, in San Francisco. I said, hoo All right, I'm, go- I'm going home. I've always wondered this because we have photos of Wilt Chamberlain in a convertible and there's it's a parade and there's no one there. I mean, it, it didn't seem like there was a lot of excitement for the Warriors. And then there's a photo of everybody up on City Hall and I don't see you there. So can you, number one, explain that? Number two, what was what was the NBA like when you came to San Francisco, and what was the interest of the? Because we're at Chase Center right now, and this is going to be packed here. But I don't think it was that way. No, it never was. And and uh, Franklin Muley was the owner, and he did everything he could to promote the team. And uh, the first uh, the first year back was a was an awful year. I mean, I think we broke the record for losses uh, in the NBA and held that record for. A, Probably until Philly broke it in nineteen in the 1970s, I think. Uh, so we're no longer uh, in the record books. But it was a dreadful year. Uh, Bob Ferrick was our coach, and uh, I think he, he was a little bit of the Peter principle. He was a college coach, and uh, mm-hmm. now he had to to, to work with uh, with NBA players. Uh, it was it was awful. So Newley had his work cut out for him. He had to try and promote a team that was that he had just bought and his group bought uh, and that wasn't doing well. And of course, there was Wilt Chamberlain, so he did everything he can to promote Wilt. Wilt was so symbolic of the NBA that he was easy to promote. But mm. still, you're not going to get a lot of fans if you're not winning. And we didn't win until Alex Hannum uh, came on board as a coach the following year. Where, where did you stay and like, what were you eating? What was, was there a workout facility? I mean, what, what was it like back then? Oh, it was prehistoric, Peter. It was prehistoric. You have the, 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 NBA, the NBA was really in its infancy. And, and I, you know, and I say that, uh, you know, knowing that we were sort of turning the corner then. Wilt and Russell, Oscar Robinson, Jerry West, that was my era. And that was the, I would say that was sort of the transition from the earlier George Mikan years. Um, so we were making a move, but uh, the, the NBA really didn't catch on until Larry Bird and Magic Johnson came on the scene, and that changed things. Back then, we, would, uh, we wouldn't fill the house. Um, probably the only arena that had a, would have full houses uh, were the Boston Celtics, and they were perennial champions. So again, you're talking about winning basketball. Uh, playoffs. By the time the playoffs uh, came, and uh, they, the crowds would would build up, but but nothing like it is now. Today, every every arena is pretty much of a sell, uh, sold out arena. I, I looked in our old articles and um, led the league in personal fouls in your first year in San Francisco, I believe, and. Every article, every columnist, the Mad Russian, the Mad Russian. Did you like that nickname? Did you, 
did you like the tough guy image? Well, it, 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 uh, it really wasn't the mad Russian. It uh -huh. was the mad Manchurian. Uh -huh. And it was uh, because that's where I was born in Manchuria, yeah. Harbin, Manchuria. And there was Rick Barry and Alex Hannum who nicknamed me the Mad Manchurian. And I can't really remember when it morphed into the Mad Russian. I think it was almost, it, it might have been after I was already out of the league that I, I went, there were some magazine articles and they referred to me as the Mad Russian. Uh, but most of the time when I was in the NBA, I was called the Mad Manchurian. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I, you know. I mean, it's it, your culture. I don't sure, think people would do it now. Yeah, Maybe I wasn't. Uh, I yeah, know. I was, you know, before Rick Barry showed up, I was, a, uh, I was sort of the designated shooter. I was a pretty darn good shooter. Then Rick Barry showed up and they said, okay, Mashiri, now you're a rebounder. All right now, now you got to go out and uh, and be like Draymond Green. You know that's why I love Draymond Green so much. Is that that we you know have similar roles. You know we have to do other things other than score. Um, and yes, I committed a lot of fouls, but I think that had to do with intensity. I was I was very intense. I was very stubborn. I was not a great athlete. I wasn't. Uh, you know I couldn't jump as high as a lot of the guys. I wasn't as fast. I was fairly quick, but uh, I think it was the, I think it was my stubbornness, my intensity that, that always, and, and I had a little bit of a short fuse, I must admit, uh, <laughs> so that when I got into tussles or I got into defensive situations and, and somebody threw an elbow, I, w I made sure that I threw one back. <laughs> so you did have a lot in common with Draymond. <laughs> <laughs> well, Draymond, it, you know, I, I really feel bad for him in many ways because it's, uh, it was, it, these are situations that actually do happen in, uh, in the NBA. Uh, players do fight, uh, they do punch, uh, they can get pretty brutal, uh, but uh, this went uh, viral over the, uh, over the internet and so he was sort of caught uh, doing what he shouldn't have done. Um, but, uh, so I feel bad. I, I remember years ago that there were a number of times I, I would have in a practice, I would have punched one of my teammates, but, uh, somebody held me back. Mm -hmm. Uh, usually it was Al Adels. Adel, Adels <laughs> knew. Well, he got Adel, in more fights. He, I found one where he, he hit a guy who was six foot nine and I was like six one and, and threw him into the stands. And I don't think either of them got ejected. Wow. <laughs> Oh no! No, no, they're not going to eject anybody in the, back then. It was just part. It was a little bit like hockey, you know. You got to, you know, the fans kind of liked it, and, yeah. and there were a lot of fights. There were an awful lot of fights back when, uh, and I think I know the probably that time that you're talking about with Adels. I think he, I think he, I think he punched Zelmo Beatty, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, and um, I think it was in. Uh, I think we were playing in Nebraska. We were playing a game in Nebraska, and there was a pretty big fight. I think I started it, <laughs> but, 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 but I think Al ended it. So it but Al was, uh, Al was pound for pound one of the strongest guys ever in the NBA. And, and I think finally players just wouldn't mess with Al. They, yeah. they, they knew that it was very dangerous to, to have him explode. Um, and I always thought, well, you know, he's got my back. <laughs> <laughs>
How did the tough guy image jive with you actually being a poet? And did your teammates know about that? Well, you know, I have tried to to figure that out uh, writing the memoir because it's really an issue. Uh, Why I had such a temper on the court and then off the court, I, I never had a temper. I taught high school teenagers when I retired for, well, 22 years in high school, but uh, actually in the classroom for about 19 years. And I don't remember ever raising my voice. Wow. Um, in all those years. I mean, I might have gotten angry with my, my AP students a couple of times, they, you know, when they mistreated a substitute or something, and I, I would get, you know, a little bit furious with them. But I never, I never really got angry with them. I don't think I ever... I spanked my children a couple of times, but I never, uh, you know, I, I always was very patient with them. And so I never could quite figure that out. I, I, I think it might have had a lot to do with um, my growing up, my desire to, um, to be, um, um, to fit uh, and, and that basketball meant fitting in. It meant becoming an American. And so on the court, if, if I felt that, and again, I'm, I, I hope I'm not being you know, too much of a psychologist here, but on the court, it seemed to me that if somebody was trying to better me or best me in a competition, they were attacking one thing I wanted most is to fit, to be part of a team, part of a tribe, maybe, so to speak. Um, and maybe that's why I, I, I would explode on the court and then off the court. I didn't have that kind of competitiveness. I didn't feel that that was um, essential. But fitting in and being part of the team was essential to my being who I was. It was my identification. It was my identity. So... That's the best I can do, you know. Yeah. Did your high school students know about your professional basketball career, and what did they think of it? <laughs> well, they did. They thought it was a, they thought it was funny. They they uh, after a while they re- realized. I think when I first took over the uh, advanced placement English class, it was a British lit course. Lit course. I think the students were a little bit wary. Like, you know, what is this big ex basketball player? Uh, <sighs> know about British literature? What does he know about literature in general? So it took me, it took me a little while uh, to convince them that I, I knew what I was talking about, and I, I knew British lit. I'd, and, uh, I had written. I, I knew a lot about American literature. And, and after a while, they realized that I was, a, I was a teacher. I wasn't just a basketball player. And, and it was kind of curious that I was a basketball player, but they were more interested, finally, in the kind of teaching I was uh, delivering. And, and they, and I've had a, just a great relationship with them. I love, the, I love teenagers. They're, they're, especially seniors, juniors and seniors, they're so... They're so ready to be adult, you know, and, <laughs> and, and they're so open and uh, they're both a little bit wise, but at the same time, they're also a little naive. So it's a wonderful teaching situation. I, those are the juniors and senior years are my favorite. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after this short break. 
Well, well, the book is uh, The Case of the 61 Chevy Impala, a Brovelli Brothers Mystery. Um, you have three of these. You have a memoir. Have you been writing just pretty much near constantly, and this is your first novel? <laughs> well, you, have, you need to talk to my wife, Melanie. <laughs> she, she says it's, she's it's here. okay. She's, yeah, she's here. She says, uh, you know, she knows where to find me. I'm in front of my computer. And uh, yes, the answer to that, Peter, is yes. I have, when I retired in 2000, from teaching in 2005, the fall of 2005, I was determined to spend the rest of my life writing uh, poetry, primarily. That I got into fiction is, is strange and, 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 and odd to say the least, but, but, it, but it, I, I come to really enjoy fiction. Um, when I look at my poems, uh, they all have sort of a narrative way about them. They, they're a little bit more, um, uh, they tell stories. Yeah. They're rhythmic, but they tell stories. They're a little bit more like prose poetry. Well, this book takes place in 1968. I'm not going to get into all the plot details, but it's two twin brothers who are running a used car lot, and there's a murder uh, involves the 61 Chevy Impala. One of the brothers goes on to become a private detective and really, I mean, going through a lot of what's going on in the 60s. Um, and I'm wondering, like, there's so much detail from the 60s, which you lived through, but also regional specificity, uh, Oakland, West Oakland, car dealerships, Alameda. There is so much detail in here. Were you researching? Were you jotting things down all through it? Uh, well, uh, not while I was living in the Bay Area, but uh, when I had the concept to write these books, I began going online. And then once you go online, you begin to remember things. So I remembered an, uh, an awful lot of that time. Uh, yeah. So that came back. And as far as the cars were concerned, the automobiles, because every one of the um, uh, the motif, the central motif of, of these books is, is the autom automobiles. How'd you get all the used car details? Did you have a source? Or? Well, I did have one source. My uh, uh, cl two classmates, twins, at St. Mary's College, uh, were actually, uh, did have a used car dealership on East 14th Street. And uh, they were kind enough to sit down with me one uh, long afternoon with hamburgers and beers and, and uh kind of go through the, the dealership problems and some of their own antics and some of the problems that used car dealers uh, faced. And I didn't necessarily model the, the books, uh, the, the, my twins after them, but um, they were enough, they provided me with enough information to get me going. And then, of course, I fictionalized everybody else in the in the, in the novel, the fathers, the mothers, the different the family members, and so on there. So it's not uh, them. Uh, but I got a lot of information from them. I got a lot of information online. I got a lot of information from friends who lived through this era, uh, 68 too. I got a lot of information from newspaper clippings mm -hmm. and, and, and memory. I, you know, 68 was, I mean, you really can't forget those years. And I intentionally decided I wanted to write uh, a series of books that took place throughout the Vietnam War. So I don't know how long I'll be able to continue writing these books, but uh, the, 
The second in the series uh, begins uh, in uh, January of 1970. Uh, the third book uh, is going to begin in the uh, summer of, of 70. And uh, then there'll be another book in 71, 72, right up until the end of the Vietnam War, when we pulled out of Vietnam. And hopefully I'll be alive to write that last book. Um, you ran a bookstore in Truckee. What was that like? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. It was, uh, it was wonderful. I, um, I had retired from uh, coaching. Uh, I was coaching the assistant coach at Portland Trailblazers. And uh, so that was, uh, that was my exit from basketball. And I thought, and I thought that would be a good exit because I love books. And uh, I had my MFA from the University of Iowa already by that time, and I was writing poems. And um, so I thought, well, that'd be a good idea. And so I uh, worked it out that there was a, a spot available on, on the Donner Pass Road and uh, created that bookstore. It was a terrific bookstore. One big problem, Mishari was a terrific bookseller. And Mishari got an awful lot of books into the store. They were wonderful. And there were a lot of people that bought books at our bookstore, the Truckee River Book and Tea. But Mishari was a very bad businessman. Mm. <laughs> so, and the uh, next thing I knew, I was in the red. Oh. And, uh, and I knew finally that was, you know, it, it's a lot of people think that book dealers are, you know, it's an idyllic situation. You sell books, you're around books, you're around novels and nonfiction books and but it's it's a business and if you really aren't willing to put in the time on the business end of it you're going to lose your shirt because there's a very very small margin in uh the book business uh 10 15 percent and you got to make you got to you got to raise your family on 10 to 15 percent of your uh gross profits and ain't happening if you're not a good businessman yeah well, you brought one of your poetry books today, and I wondered if you could read one on the podcast. Oh, I will. I will. Uh, I have some poems that are related to to the to the warriors in, yeah, in some great. ways. And I, th I thought fitting. those would be yeah, this. Uh, the first one. The that names I'm, of your books, if you oh, don't mind. Well, this is actually this. Uh, this is called Clear Path, and this uh, my new collection is just out uh, in September. You mentioned fowls. You mentioned that I got a lot of fouls. Well, one poem is called uh, 2,841 Personal Fouls. That's, that's, the number, <laughs> that's the number of fouls that I, that I accumulated over my career. Um, even at the age of 82, when I should know better, the thought of dying still pisses me off. I feel as if I've just been called for a foul I didn't commit. I was reading the sports page. Years of fouls I didn't deserve came back. The unfairness, refs missing the elbow that hit me and calling the one I threw to even the score. This morning, didn't I wake up in sunlight and a warm breeze? Didn't my wife poke her head into the office to tell me she loved me? I flavor my coffee with honey that is sweet as life. I should live a little longer. And I'll read one last one, okay? Uh, it's called Wonder, and I, I'm very partial to this poem. It is probably as good a time as any, an ill wind plaguing the earth, men and women dying of a virus 
that is so far baffling science and the ill will of humans rising to the surface like the ooze of oil, that I present to you a trumpet roll, if you please, one of Wilt Chamberlain's magnificent finger rolls, a Kareem Jabbar skyhook, Jordan's gravity-defying ballet, magic, handle, Steve, Stephen Curry's three-point shot that in its graceful elevation becomes a thing of wonder. And lest I forget, in this time of evil, the marvel of certain words, grace, patience, kindness, honor, sacrifice, when together become a bouquet of wonder that we should present as gifts to each other. Love it. That's lovely. Thank you so much. We're a very poetry-friendly podcast. A good, indie, good. Indie bookstore friendly podcast and a warriors friendly podcast. So. <laughs> and you're wonderful, off wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm into all of those things. <laughs> so I've got just a. This is kind of our final section here. I'm going to just pass you a few photos, and if you don't mind, just hold it up, uh, and then um, tell me. You know, share a memory or two if you have some. If you sure. remember what's going on in these. Um, I believe I see. Two children, you, Rick Berry, and Nate Thurman here. Oh, that's a great, that's a great photo. <laughs> I think my, my daughter is, uh, this is my oldest daughter, Janai, and we have just returned from Philadelphia. Yeah, and we just returned. We just returned from, uh, got off the airplane at the San Francisco airport, uh, where we, uh, from Philadelphia, where we had defeated the Philadelphia 76ers in game five, and we weren't supposed to have beaten them. In fact, they had champagne in their locker room all ready to go. They were going on a big trip, and they were sure that they were going to beat us, and we, we, we outplayed them, and we beat them. as one of my best games. I, I really am very proud of this particular game that I played, and it's Rick and, and, and Scooter, his first uh, uh, Boy, and then Nate Thurman in the back. Oh, there's sweet Nate. He's with we, the bowler we, hat. Yeah, He's looking fly. <laughs> and we really we miss Nate so much. He's such a wonderful man. Well, I got a couple more. Um, showed you this one before, but take a look and then show. Oh, that's that's Tom Macheri with perfect form. <laughs> Absolutely perfect form. This is a this is a photograph you could use in instruction. <laughs> <laughs> this is high school. Uh, I was 113 in high school, uh, and uh, I wanted to be 13 when I went to the NBA, but uh, somebody had that number before me. I think his name was Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we won. Lowell High School was, uh, was a really great basketball high school in San Francisco and won many, many championships, city championships. Um, under Coach Benny Neff, who was an absolutely terrific coach and an unbelievable tyrant as well. But he knew basketball probably as good as anybody. And uh, the only team we lost to was St. Ignatius. We, we never won a city. When I was there, we never won a city championship because St. Ignatius always beat us in the final game. And they had a very wonderful player named Fred LaCour who um, really was maybe the best high school 
basketball player in the Bay Area until Jason Kidd came along uh, in St. Joseph's in Alameda. Well, you left yourself off that, but that's okay. Last one here. That's a birthday cake oh. for you, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yep, that's St. Mary's College. It's one of the great schools of all time. It's, uh, it's just a terrific humanities school. It's one of the, and it has a tremendous basketball tradition back then, and it, now it has a tremendous basketball tradition with Randy Bennett, who took over the coaching job about 10 years ago. I almost don't recognize myself. I'm so young. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this is wonderful. It's good, really good memories of college. St. Mary's uh, actually made the cover of Look Magazine. We, we uh, got more people in a telephone booth. <laughs> <laughs> How many people? It is an iconic photograph. Huh. If you, yeah. if you, you'll, you can go online, you can look it up. And this is St. Mary's. This is a Gale. Look how tight the shorts are. Aren't they terrific? Huh? <laughs> well, finally, do you still follow the Warriors closely? And what do you think of the team today? Well, I do follow, Heather. I do follow the Warriors very closely. I didn't for a long time. I, when I was teaching, I was very busy. And uh, so I didn't have the, 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 the time to really do that. I, was, I lived in Truckee, and I commuted down to Reno, where my high school was. Uh, and the ownership was a little bit different back then. They, they were not as inclusive as they are now. Um, the, uh, my interest in basketball was renewed um, um, after I retired, actually, after I retired from, uh, from teaching. I um, was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and uh, had to go through a whole process of uh, white blood cell uh, uh, transfusion and um, replacement. And uh, then I had, to be, uh, I had to be isolated in my home during recovery. And my son, uh, bless him, uh, gave me the NBA league pass for a gift. So I couldn't go anywhere. People had to buy groceries for me and you know, family had to, you know, I was totally isolated. And I had to be isolated for two months because oh, wow. I was very vulnerable to germs uh, after that procedure. So I started watching the NBA games, of course, and I watched the Warriors and I thought, fine, this, you know, I'm, I've been missing something. You know, this game has, has morphed. It's not, it's played in the air. It's so much like the playground basketball that I remember loving so much when I was a kid. And so I just became hooked. And, but I still didn't go down to a lot of Warrior games because it was just a different ownership and trying to get tickets was very difficult. You know, I, I felt Your numbers like, are tired. I know. Yeah, Doesn't I know, that get you into any game But, you, you know, they, they, it was just a different, it was a different yeah. organization. No, I know. And I felt like I was begging and I didn't like that feeling yeah. at all. So I said, what the heck, I'm, you know, I can watch them on television. But then the ownership changed. Okay, then Joe... Uh, Lacob and um, Peter Guber bought the team, and uh, and they immediately changed the culture. They were so outgoing, and they brought all of the old players back to the fold, so to speak. And they embraced us. They made us feel like we were wanted. And uh, then they they hired uh, Rick Welts, who was the COO of. Uh, um, of the Warriors, and in fact, responsible for 
building this yeah. beautiful yeah. arena. And Rick and I became very good friends. And, and, and there's a funny story there. Uh, Melanie and I had moved to Alameda and we were living in Alameda at the, at the time. And I get a telephone call from, uh, from the Warriors and, and the voice on the other end of the line is, uh, says, my name is Rick Welts, Tom. I'm not sure you remember me. So I'm thinking, I'm going through the Rolodex in my head trying to figure out, you know, who is Rick Welts? Who is Rick Welts? And, and, and he said, well, uh, I'll tell you who I am. I was your ball boy in, in, <laughs> in Seattle when you played for Seattle. I said, no, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, no, I was 10 years old. I was your ball boy. And you, you and Ren Lenny Wilkins treated the ball boys really nicely. And, and of course, he grew up to be the, the darling of the NBA. I mean, he yeah. started NBA yeah. properties and, and, uh, and work with the commissioner. Where, oh, he was like, he's been know, on our podcast. Oh, yeah. He was, we, we love he was really a, you know, he, he helped the NBA become, the business NBA that it is today. Yeah. And uh, when he retired, he and his partner live in Sacramento, as a matter of fact. And so we see them and oh. uh, they're, you know, just terrific guys. And uh, and then, and of course, uh, I had lunch with Rick. Uh, uh, he invited me to the Warriors and, uh, and I started going to games. And so, and I've been, you know, I've been a devoted fan ever since. I was always a fan of the Warriors, but I became even more uh, a part of the team. And the way that then, of course, the Curry thing started, and I looked at that magic and that ballet that they were doing and that tremendous, uh, just tremendous basketball. This worth motion, mo great motion offense. It wasn't all that pick-and-roll stuff. It was, it was just really good basketball, and I just became... Uh, total fan. I'm an addict. Uh, you, you, wrote, addict. you wrote a poem about it. Oh, I did. Yeah. I wrote, well, I think, I think the Warriors are in a lot of my poems. <laughs> well, one more time. Um, you've got a few books, but one more time. The book uh, that I'm reading right now is The Case of the 61 Chevy Impala, a Brovelli Brothers Mystery, the first of three from Camel Press. Um, buy it at your local indie bookstore. They'll order it for you. They don't have it. And Clear Path is out right now, too? Clear Path is, but you have to go to my website uh, to uh, order that. It's, uh, it, you can order it either from the publisher or directly from me, but it'll be on my website. My website is, is very simple. It's, uh, it's warrior14.com. Warrior14.com. Can't get easier than that. Yeah. And it has all of the information for all of the books, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, on the website. All right. One last question, because you said it before the podcast, I wanted to get it in here. What was your signing bonus when you signed with the Warriors? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you really want me to embarrass myself, huh? Okay. $2,000. And, and I went immediately to Sully Motors in Oakland, and I bought a 61 Chevy Impala Aww. convertible. It all comes full circle. It all comes full circle. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, You're, Tom. Peter, Heather, thank you very much for having me. It was fun to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our music today is from the Sunset Shipwrecks, Castro organ player David Hegarty, and cable car bell ringing from eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by investing in a Digital Chronicle edition. It's less expensive than you think at sfchronicle.com slash pod.
Oh, shit. I missed that so much. Boom. Good job. We didn't drink wine. <laughs> we didn't drink wine. Oh. This is our first Zoom podcast in like. Except for the trails one. Two years. And I we drank wine every time. I know. Like if I didn't have a glass of wine, you would make me go get one. <laughs> well, we'll remember next time. Okay. We'll drink extra wine next time that'll make for a good <laughs> podcast <laughs> okay i'll send this to you now sounds great thank you for making time yep okay, bye